Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Maria Stefan, is a pioneering academic and public intellectual who studies authoritarian regimes and how they fall. She's the co-author with Erica Chenoweth of the groundbreaking and award-winning book, Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict, which was a first-of-its-kind study that offered empirical evidence that nonviolent resistance is more effective than conflict and civil war in toppling oppressive regimes. She recently led a study with the Atlantic Council showing that authoritarianism is on the rise globally, and we kick off with an extended conversation about that study and how the recent U.S. election fits into her overall thesis. Maria grew up in rural Vermont, and we have a great conversation about the roots of her intellectual curiosity and how that took her to study and compare resistance movements around the world, including East Timor and Palestine. Maria is a senior fellow with the U.S. Institute of Peace and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, and I should note that in a previous episode, way back in episode number 39, I interviewed her co-author Erica Chenoweth. So if this episode leaves you craving more, and I'm sure it will, and you have not yet gone back and listened to my conversation with Erica, then do check that out. And I should also note that this is a good time to plug the fact that those episodes that are numbered are generally and typically evergreen. You can listen to them anytime. Go back, pick a person that you might want to learn more about and have at it. I make these episodes as enduring content, content that's not necessarily time-pegged because, frankly, these people have had really fascinating and interesting lives and The stories that they share are relevant at any time. And of course, you can find all those archives on globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can get in touch with me. And I do love hearing from you. Make a recurring contribution to the podcast to join our premium club or leave a review on iTunes. And now here is Maria Stefan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the election in the United States, Trump's victory in a larger larger geostrategic context, and that is um, resurgent authoritarianism that's happening globally. Um, you know, the Brexit vote um, in the UK, um, even, uh, you know, the rise of right-wing parties in Europe, in Hungary, in Poland, and elsewhere um, is just a sign of a growing and troubling trend of, of closing civic space and rising authoritarianism. So I think we're definitely part of a, of a larger trend. And I think we're also seeing around the world um, just profound 
distrust in institutions of government in elite politics. And, you know, interestingly, we know um, from statistics that there have been more nonviolent protests in the first um, three or four years of this decade than in like the entire 1950s. So we are in the most contentious period of human history, I think. So a lot of people are just expressing dissent and challenging the status quo. But we're troublingly seeing a, a shift to the right in many places, which is worrisome for especially for vulnerable communities around the world. So if this sort of creeping authoritarianism around the world is something that's sort of spreading, that sort of an authoritarian movement, one where one place can sort of suggest or inform authoritarians like elsewhere, is there like a, a patient zero for this virus? Like what, what's at the root um, and where did this begin? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's one single cause uh, for for the rise of authoritarianism, but you know, basically, the the there are a number of factors. The global economic crisis that hit um, various parts of the world in in the early 2000s has sort of manifested itself during different times. So we're seeing certainly a global trend towards greater inequality. Um, you know, and there's been tremendous frustration um, about um, you know the just the the uh, economic the general economic situation. There are some haves and have nots. And we're seeing just, you know, a, a troubling rise of inequality globally, which I think is part of the issue. Um, you know, I also just think that the the institutions of government and democratic institutions haven't been functioning well for the people around the world. And so I think we're really at a point where, um, you know, we're having to rethink um, the meaning um, and, and purpose of democratic citizenship and what it means for institutions um, to protect and defend the, the, the best interests of, of the populations in, in, in various countries. So dissatisfaction with the economic situation, dissatisfaction with institutions of government. Um, you know, I think one, um, one trend when it comes to, to the spread of authoritarianism, and that is that these regimes are certainly learning from each other. Um, you know, we're also seeing democratic backsliding in places, but in many uh, parts of the world, whether it's Russia, Venezuela, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Central Asian countries, there's a lot of sharing between regimes and how to contain um, and, and challenge domestic dissent and opposition. Like what? So a lot of... So a lot of spread in tactics. So everything from imposing um, laws, rules, and restrictions um, um, that are cracking down on civil society, the ability of groups to organize as NGOs, the, their ability to receive foreign funding, their ability to freely assemble. Um, there are a number of rules and laws now in many countries that limit um, the size of public gatherings to five or below, for example. And there's a lot of cutting and pasting going on between countries and um, and laws to restrict civic space. And so there, this is certainly a number of tactics that are being spread. And, and regimes tend to, you know, follow many of the same um, playbook tactics, if you will, when it comes to challenging domestic dissent. So everything from declaring, uh, you know, protesters and dissenters to be uh, traitors and, and foreign-backed, um, you know, illegitimate uh, actors, or so calling them the traitors or calling them subversives or, tra or terrorists, you know, so this is very common. 
um, you know, trying to co-opt various people in society with funding and, and, and other means, um, you know, sending in armed thugs to foment violence um, during demonstrations to make the, uh, the, the peaceful protesters look bad and look illegitimate. So there are a number of things that are sort of happening and, and lessons that are being shared between um, regimes around the world uh, that is definitely troubling. Yeah, I mean, it seems that what often happens is that governments use uh, sort of a tragic event as a pretext to track crack down on their pre-existing political rivals. I mean, you know, we're speaking a day after the Russian ambassador to Turkey was was gunned down in um, you know in broad daylight and in a pretty you know horrific circumstances, and you saw immediately the Turkish government blaming the Gulenist opposition for his for his assassination. Yeah, I mean, regimes of all stripe are, are expert at diversionary tactics, for sure. And especially when, you know, there are domestic problems, economic or otherwise, it, it's sometimes easy to um, divert attention and focus on, on you know, other um, international issues or other, um, you know, other uh, examples. So for sure, this is happening. And one can only hope that um, these incidents will not lead to a greater escalation of violence um, around the world. So so let me ask you this. If you're someone who fears that the president-elect, Donald Trump, you know, harbors some of these authoritarian tendencies, what uh, can we learn in the United States from experiences of, of like resistors or civil society groups abroad and how they've sort of countered uh, sort of creeping uh, authoritarianism? Sure. Um, well, what we can learn from these other movements is that it's possible to out-organize and out-strategize authoritarian leaders, um, and that really the best antidote to um, rising authoritarianism is a strategic nonviolent organizing and being able to mobilize different groups in society and build broad-based movements, so those that involve workers and students, youth, women, um, you know, professional groups um, coming together around issues that people care about that affect their lives and directly challenge um, the policies and positions of, of these individuals and governments. So, you know, and I think we're at that moment now in human history where, you know, on the one hand, people are very concerned about uh, the erosion of democratic norms institutions under a Trump administration. But at the same time, um, there's been sort of a profound upsurge in interest in getting involved and, you know, figuring out how to, um, you know, become involved in local issues and organizing um, and in coalition building. So, you know, for me, that's kind of the silver lining of what otherwise is, is a pretty bleak uh, domestic situation. Um, I mean, if you look at, again, I'll pick Turkey as, as an example, because, you know, you also it's like a, you know, an erstwhile democratic state um, where you had, a, you know, a populist strongman leader come to power several years ago and systematically has disintegrated institutions of, of government and civil society and, and media there. I mean, why has Turkey succumbed? Sure. Well, I think, you know, an interesting facet of Turkey's slide um, into authoritarianism that is certainly relevant for our domestic uh, context is that, 
you know, the, the, the backsliding can be very gradual, gradual. Um, the, dem- the erosion of democratic norms, institutions, values can take place over a period of time. It's not always a single ru- rupture, um, you know, that, that you know that your, your country is going back. And so it was sort of a, a, a gradual process. And there were certainly peaks, um, you know, and catalytic events like the Gezi protests and beyond in Turkey, but it's been sort of a gradual process. And I think that's what, you know, uh, a number of folks are very concerned about in the United States, that there may not be one or two or five incidences, but over time, you know, there could be the normalization of things that aren't normal um, in a democratic context, that the, you know, a weakening of institutions, of checks and balances could happen over time. Um, it won't always be obvious when, when lines have been crossed. There'll be sort of slippery slopes. Um, and so there has to be preparation, you know, sort of preparation in place and organizing happening to both detect, you know, this um, when these changes are happening, when red lines and tripwires are being crossed and what it will mean to, to organize and mobilize against this. And it makes organizing a challenge, but also it makes having a long-term strategy for democratic revival and sort of defending the republic in the United States very, very important. Um, I guess it just seems, though, that if these um, norm shifting is happens so gradually, right, uh, if it's a little at a time, then it's just that much more difficult for a popular movement to to emerge to resist it. It, it it can be, but I can say, I mean, my observation from the the days and weeks, um, you know, after the election is that there are serious conversations happening in this country from people in the government, even outside of the government in professional networks, um, you know, the, the traditional uh, grassroots activists working on racial justice and others. And they're talking very seriously about what it means to have a strategy um, that looks long term, that focuses on, you know, certain uh, laws and practices that are most threatened and, and groups that are most vulnerable, whether they're Muslims, whether they're, um, you know, African-Americans, whether they're immigrants and organizing strategies around the most vulnerable groups, but with an idea being that, you know, there has to be a longer term strategy focused on the next elections, uh, 2018, 2020. So there has to be sort of a longer term time horizon. So yes, it's challenging, but I think, you know, that just uh, reinforces the necessity of having um, a long term strategic plan for organizing. Can I ask, have you been involved in any of these conversations personally? I mean, you're one of the, you know, foremost, if not, you know, maybe few academics who who study you know this this you know with, from like a scientific point of view, a social science point of view. Um, like, have people turned to you recently, or are you involved in these conversations? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of informal sort of house conversations that are happening where people are just trying to figure, you know, sort of coping with the current situation and trying to figure out what to do next. You know, the different networks that exist, who's doing what. So there have been a lot of informal sort of house party type organizing. There are a number of obviously online Facebook conversations happening um, with people talking about different activities and ways to get involved uh, locally, nationally, a number of professional networks have been set up. I've been talking with folks in, you know, who are more in a government uh, perspective, U.S., who are remaining in the United States government. What does that mean to serve in a Trump administration? So, you know, and have ethical red lines and be prepared and all these kinds of things. So, yes, um, for sure, I've been very involved in these kinds of conversations since the election. Yeah, you're like the academic the moment needs right now. So I'm, I'm very glad to be speaking with you.
No, it's my honor. And I think uh, now's the time for, for, you know, folks studying civil resistance and, and nonviolent action and nonviolent movements, um, you know, in this country and internationally to really step up to the plate and allow their research and academic scholarship to inform um, some of the very practical um, strategic organizing conversations that are being held in this country and in other countries around the world. See, I'm just, so I was a peace studies major in the early 2000s, long before or I, your work or your Erica's work were ever sort of on, on the radar screen. And I wish that I had access to that now, like back then. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the kind of work that, that you're doing. But I would love to learn uh, more about how you got involved in this line of work, how you became interested in nonviolence, strategic nonviolence, civil resistance. So, so let's, let's go back. So where are you from? Yeah, so I, I grew up in, in rural Vermont in uh, North Clarendon, uh, which is just outside of Rutland in South Central. And um, yeah, I mean, I think growing up in Vermont certainly um, had a profound effect on, mm-hmm. you know, the, my interest in the work of social justice and community organizing. You know, anyone who's spent time in Vermont knows that sort of local organizing, uh, community solidarity seems to be a strong part of our DNA in mm-hmm. the state. And now, sort of the we, idea of... Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, 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 were your parents like transplants from New York, like a lot of uh, Vermonters at, at the time, or they sort of go way back? So my father will identify as a native Vermonter because he was born in Burlington. My okay. mom will more identify as a Michigander. Um, okay. You know, both we have strong family roots in Michigan, um, but by now they've lived so many years in Vermont that they're as there's native, I think, as it gets. So I guess what is it? Is it the 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 smallness? By by small, I mean just sort of you know, population is, is small, or even like the homogeneity, the the fact that it's you know almost all white. Um, does that, I mean, affect the ability of communities to coalesce in a way that they did in, in Vermont? Yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, in terms of the whiteness, for sure, you know, it's, it's a white state, but it's not a homogenous state. I mean, if you look at the percentage of ethnic minorities who have come during different periods, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a Vietnamese or whether it's um, those coming from Africa, I mean, there have been sort of, you know, uh, small numbers, but it remains a pretty diverse state ethnically. Um, but, you know, yes, it, it is, um, for the most part, a white state. But I think the smallness is part of it. I think, you know, we were one of two um, states to join the United States, not as a state, but as a republic. So we were for a number of years an independent republic like Texas, meaning we had our own constitution, standing army, postal system. So the whole idea of independence is, I think, seeped in very um, deeply just because of that history. Um, And, you know, we have very strong aboriginal culture in Vermont. So a lot of Vermont identity as well is from the Native American. American tribes um, who lived there for for centuries. And so that's part of it. And just the whole idea of all politics is local and the, you know, uh, town hall meetings on election day are like a, uh, you know, a state holiday. And it's just like a, a, um, it's, you know, kind of a rite of passage that you get involved locally and you participate. So I don't know. I think it's a, it's a variety of different facets, Um, but it kind of makes for a, 
unique um, environment and one that I think just by living there sort of has an impact on you. So was your, your family was pretty politically involved then? Not politically. So I would say I don't necessarily come from a politically, they've become more politically active over, uh, politically active over time, but certainly in social, um, in social justice issues. So, you know, take probably the, um, you know, the experience growing up in Vermont that had the greatest impact on me personally, professionally was um, living for a summer at a at a place called the Rutland Dismas House. And this is um, also Rutland Dismas House is an organization that my both of my parents are very actively involved in as volunteers. So Dismas is a home of transition for former prisoners and college students. Um, the idea um, was uh, came from uh, a priest, Father Jack Hickey, in the 1970s when he set up the first uh, Dismas House in Tennessee. And since that time, they've sprouted all around the country. And so the Vermont Dismas House um, was created in the 90s. And the whole idea um, behind Dismas is um, helping, you know, working with the community to help reintegrate um, prisoners into society and to essentially reconcile prisoners to society while recognizing, uh, reconciling society to prisoners. And so it's this unique living environment where, you know, students are living with, with, with ex-convicts who, you know, and you're having uh, weekly meetings together, um, daily, you know, evening dinners where you're sitting around the table together, you know, all of the residents are required to, to find work and pay rent. Um, you have of community members coming in to cook meals, um, to support recreational activities, to fix things around the house. So it's this amazing experience um, in community organizing and support for this type of social justice that, you know, really for me was um, kind of the kickoff point for my my both my awareness of what it means for communities to be involved in social justice issues, including tough issues like, you know, reintegrating former prisoners in society, which always causes debate and controversy and the like, but seeing sort of the community prevail in this case and how effective um, Dismas House has been both in Vermont and around the country, um, you know, was something just that really influenced my outlook. And it's something that my parents um, have been involved in for for a very long time. So those were the kind of issues I think and, and experiences that were very formative uh, for me growing up in Vermont. And, you know, obviously like a lot of your research later in life focused on the ways in which the state punishes people for um, resisting the actions of, of the state. And, you know, one form of punishment is, of course, Im Im imprisonment. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, so there, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, I sometimes find myself naturally um, attracted to and gravitating towards, um, you know, criminal justice issues and prison reform issues um, and, trans, you know, sort of the transformative justice ideals. Um, you know, it was a very different context, but um, certainly this, but more, you know, beyond just the state society relations aspect, just the importance of, you know, community mobilizing um, to support 
um, you know, this particular group of individuals who, you know, often when they leave prison, they fail. They fail to reintegrate. And it's, it's very, very difficult. And you need sort of the sanctuary of a community and the sanctuary of a home like this to be able to facilitate the reintegration. So for me, it was just a, a fascinating um, example of reconciliation in action that, um, you, know, uh, you know, links to some of the other uh, work that I've done for sure. So how um, did you start your career academically? Where did you go to school? Sure. So I did my undergraduate um, studies at Boston College, um, where I was a political science major. So I was in Chestnut Hill for a few years. And one of those years, um, my junior year abroad, I spent in Strasbourg, France. This was my first ever uh, experience overseas. And I was inscribed at a French university where all the courses were in French. So all the exams and conversations. So it was a deep, deep immersion. Um, so and the great thing about being in Strasbourg was that this is, you know, the crossroads of Europe. So there were so many international students and uh, different languages, cultures there. And it was, um, you know, for me, a really fascinating experience and what set me off in the international direction. But, you know, Boston College is a, is a Jesuit university. Um, uh, so obviously, I I received some indoctrination by the Jesuits who tend to be very social justice oriented. So for sure, that was that was part of my early education. Um, And but at that time, I was not focused on civil resistance or nonviolent movements. My academic work back then was focused on the process of European integration. So the central driving question for me and what I wrote my thesis on was about, um, yeah, essentially how the countries of Europe that had been fighting terrible wars for decades um, made war on the continent, um, you know, between members impossible by virtue of this very interesting integration process that began with coal and steel and has evolved ever since. Um, And I was very interested in this institutional approach to peace building and how that worked in practice, um, which obviously is quite different from the work that I'm doing now, but very formative in the sense that, um, it, you know, it was just very interesting to study how warfare is made impossible by virtue of various um, processes, with this one being a, a more institutional approach. Um, so, yeah, so that was a very interesting experience uh, for me, both, you know, being doing my undergraduate studies at BC and then being in France and then later Germany. So I, I figured as long as I'm in France studying European integration from a French perspective, I might as well um, glean the German perspective on European integration. So actually, before starting my uh, graduate studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, um, I spent a Fulbright year in Bonn, Germany, studying the German perspective on European uh, integration and well, European common foreign and security policy. So, so how did it differ from, say, the, the, the French perspective? I mean, from Germany's perspective, you know, we will bind our economies to yours. So you, you know, so, so our better angels prevail. That would, I mean, there is certainly 
obviously a collective sense of guilt coming from the Second World War, the Holocaust and beyond that, you know, um, there needed to be integration to restrain um, German power at that time. That was a guiding principle uh, in that integration would make aggression um, less imaginable, which is true. Um, so there was definitely a greater influence uh, or, you know, uh, emphasis, if you will, on that aspect. Whereas, you know, the French, um, the French have always prided themselves on, on preserving their independence of maneuver and not being fully part of NATO and, and having nuclear power and that kind of thing. And, but still, there were visionaries from both countries, from the Monets, the Schumanns, the Adenauers, that made this project possible. And so I just liked studying you know, the perspectives of European integration from the two major motors, which was uh, France and Germany. I mean, was this also during, say, the, the time of the Balkans conflict? This was right after. Um, okay. So, I, you know, so Balkans work was, was um, the Balkans conflict was part of the conversations that were being held, the classes that were being conducted. I remember I got involved um, in a Balkans reconstruction effort involving students across Europe. So, Strangely enough, as an American, they allowed me to join a European student network, which was uh, called AG, l'Association des étudiants de l'Europe. I'm forgetting. No, Association générale des étudiants de l'Europe, AG. So they allowed me to travel to conferences and go to all these different places. And I remember there was a student conference on, you know, sort of the drivers of the Balkan War and then, you know, what it would mean to, um, you know, to, to rebuild. Um, and so it was a time that was of great interest, not just to students, but beyond. So yeah, for sure, it was an interesting time to be in Europe. Um, and so you went back to, to Tufts, great school. That's where I did my, my aforementioned undergrad Ooh. program. Um, okay, so maybe terrific. we cross paths. I don't know, were you there like 2003, <laughs> 2002? Yeah, exactly. So there you was, go. Well, you were I one finished. of those those older kids in, in, in the grad program while, while we were running a, a little runs oh. for Yeah. That's well. That's great to hear. Um, yeah. No, I finished my master's with the the so-called MALD, the master's yes. in law and diplomacy, in 2002, and then I um, did my PhD and finished that in 2005. So, so we, yeah, we then I spent very the next well few may years have crossed paths a decade and a half did. ago. Um, so, so <laughs> what did you end up writing your your PhD thesis on? So, you know, uh, when I started at, at Fletcher, I kind of did a 180 um, in the sense that it went from studying European common um, foreign and security policy to people power and what are strategies effect of effective nonviolent resistance. And, you know, if I, I thinking back at that time, sort of how what inspired me to go more in that direction, I remember um, just a few months after starting at Fletcher, they were having in Boston on at a theater on One Milk Street, uh, the screening of a documentary film um, called A Force More Powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was, you know, Peter a documentary Ackerman, right? film. Yeah. With Peter Ackerman was involved. Steve York was involved. Um, you know, this was nominated for an, an Emmy a few years ago. Just an amazing film that brought to life um, popular nonviolent struggles against the worst form of tyranny and oppression. So everything from the Gandhi-led independence movement to the Danish resistance to the Nazis to the ouster of Pinochet, the dictator in Chile, to our civil rights movement in the United States, the anti-apartheid struggle, the Polish solidarity movement. So this, this documentary film just had, you know, amazing footage and interviews and people explaining how they organized and resisted in the most difficult of circumstances and how they won. And I remember, you know, being so inspired when I saw that film. And it was one of the rare occasions when as a 
poor graduate student, I actually bought the book. So they had copies of A Force More Powerful there, and I bought it. And it was one that I obviously read uh, cover to cover and then was just very inspired to, um, you know, to focus my studies, which were always security studies related. So I was always going to have sort of a security strategic studies slant, but to make, um, you know, studying the strategies of nonviolent resistance central to my work. So I ended up writing my PhD dissertation on the strategies of nonviolent struggle in three self-determination movements. Um, so I looked at the first Palestinian Intifada, um, late 80s to early 90s, the uh, Kosovo-Albanian independence movement, and the East Timorese independence movement. And so my research allowed me to co conduct, um, you know, interviews and, and uh, um, field research in all three places. And so I, it was an interesting set of cases because these were movements challenging foreign military occupation. So it wasn't just, you know, people resisting dictatorships or corrupt regimes. Um, you know, the, the power holder was essentially in a different place um, that was occupying these, these territories. So I was trying to understand, okay, what does it mean to have an effective nonviolent strategy in these contexts where the populations don't have direct leverage um, over the power holder or over the opponent, but you know, you have to find a way to extend the nonviolent battlefield and find a way to build ties and relationships, um, you know, in, in another country, essentially, to be able to effectively challenge, um, you know, these types of military occupations. Uh, so it was, it was fascinating research, um, and it was mainly just great to be able to get out into the field and talk to people who had been part of these movements in three very different but yet related, um, you know, countries and contexts. And, and I mean, East Timor must have been a country for like a year, right? When, by the time you were there? Yeah. It was, it was, it was definitely the newest state. Um, now South Sudan is, but at that time it was the newest, uh, it was like 2002 it was an independent, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And I was, so I was doing my research in, um, that would have been in 03. I may have, you know, it might've been 03 or 04 when I was um, you know, in country in East Timor. But yeah, it was fascinating, you know, interviewing uh, East Timorese who had been part of the armed resistance, you know, because there was a period when it was mainly an armed insurgency against, um, you know, the in Indonesian authorities and occupying powers. Um, and so hearing that perspective, but then hearing the leader of, you know, the armed resistance basically make the compelling case that what was decisive in East Timor's um, independence was the very active nonviolent organizing, both within East Timor, within Indonesia, and then internationally. Like when he's telling um, you so, this, are you yeah. having like an aha moment? You're like, this is my thesis right here. Keep talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Because, you know, I, I, I am always, I'm interested in the strategic dimensions of nonviolent resistance. And I'm very interested to hear from those who have used weapons in the past or have used violence, like what, how is, what is their thinking about this whole nonviolent action and nonviolent resistance? How do they understand its power? And sometimes you find that military folks and, um, you know, understand the strategic principles sometimes better than civilians do. So yeah, that was a very uh, formative experience. And of course, you know, uh, East Timor has been through great tumult and violence and upheaval, but, you know, I was just trying to really understand how is it that a country 
country that lost a third of its population during over the course of a counterinsurgency campaign became the world's newest independent state. How do you explain that? And I don't think you can without, you know, really analyzing the strategy of the nonviolent resistance used by the opposition. Was there like a particular strategy that they employed that that was effective? Yeah. So um, I remember in my dissertation honing in on um, two aspects of the East Timorese strategy, and that was um, so-called Indonesianization and internationalization. So they, and these words came from them, Indonesianization meant that the East Timorese were working with Indonesian activists, human rights um, defenders. Um, they were using their courts, their media. They even had this tactic that was at the time famous. Now it's been replicated by activists and other movements where um, East Timorese would jump over the fences of embassies in Jakarta. So it was like a fence jumping tactic in order to raise awareness of the human rights uh, violations that were happening in East Timor to attract diplomatic attention. And so literally this was extending the nonviolent battlefield into the heart of the oppressor at that time, which was which was Indonesia. But importantly, they they understood the value of working with Indonesian civilians, activists, organizations, institutions that were fighting their own battles for, you know, a more just and democratic Indonesia. So that was the Indonesianization part. The internationalization part was, you know, basically forming a global solidarity network around the world that shone a spotlight on what was happening in this tiny um, island country and to build momentum for the self-determination movement and later independence. So, you know, in this country, the ETAN network, um, the East Timor, East Timorese Action Network was one of the driving forces of this, um, you know, international solidarity work all over various countries, Europe, Asia, but beyond Australia. Um, you had very active advocacy and mobilizing mm -hmm. happening around and, and, um, East Timor. And we should probably point out, you know, it, it, it worked like the U.S., the, the Clinton administration supported uh, an intervention. Australian troops were, you know, intervened on, on behalf of East Timorese independence. So it, it seemed seemed to work. Yeah, I mean, um, it was uh, it it was quite effective. Yes. Um. So you wrote this this uh, PhD thesis, and I mean, at the time, like, how much academic research was there on the strategic logic of of nonviolence of of nonviolent resistance? I mean, we were mentioning earlier when I was at Tufts doing this as an undergrad, it was all sort of anecdotal kind of evidence. There was, I don't really ever remember reading like a hard social science on on the topic. Well, I mean, at that time, there were some some classic texts. So, you know, um, Dr. Gene Sharp is is quite is famous in the field. He's a sociologist based in Boston. And mm -hmm. Gene Sharp, you know, is famous for writing tomes about strategies and tactics of nonviolent action. So probably his most famous publication is The Politics of Nonviolent Action, which he wrote in, in the 1970s. And, you know, as part of that volume, he had listed 198 methods of nonviolent action. But 
you know, Sharp was the first one to really theorize around, you know, where the power of nonviolent resistance comes from. It can, comes from consent and cooperation of ordinary people and how that consent and cooperation can be withheld or denied and how that translates into significant power. So, you know, Sharp was um, a very important theorist and early writer. And then others began to look, you know, more at, at um, different case studies as well. So in the American context, Peter Ackerman and Chris Krugler wrote the, you know, strategic principles of nonviolent conflict that looked at, a, you know, over 10, around 12 different cases of nonviolent resistance. And they analyzed the successes and the failures of these campaigns from a strategic perspective, um, you know, which was very, very helpful. And, you know, then you had people like Robert Helvey, again, adding to the what does it mean for a movement to be strategic? What are strategic principles? But so there, you know, and there were a number of, of authors um, around the world. Howard Clark, for example, was one that really influenced my dissertation writing because he focused specifically on civil resistance challenging, uh, um, you know, foreign military occupations and what that meant. He did great work on Kosovo and, and other countries. So, you know, and, and then Mary King at the time, Mary King's book on the strategy of nonviolent resistance during the first Palestinian Intifada was coming out right as I was finishing my dissertation. So it was amazing to sort of, you know, read her, her interviews and all the information she gathered about the, the different tactics and strategies of nonviolent resistance. And people like Kurt Schock, you know, who's a sociologist based at Rutgers, um, had written about nonviolent insurgencies and, and how they, you know, why some succeed and others fail. So, so there, there, there was you know, stuff no, out there. There was some stuff coming out. What had not been done, you know, uh, uh, what had not been done until then was a systematic study of the effectiveness of nonviolent resistance over history compared to armed struggle. So that's where the work, um, the research uh, that I conducted with Erica Chenoweth a few years ago, which culminated in why civil resistance works, was a helpful addition to the literature because we were able to really, you know, uh, draw on over 330 campaigns, violent and nonviolent, and come to the conclusion through a pretty rigorous um, methodological approach that the nonviolent resistance campaigns had been twice as effective historically as violence. So that was kind of, for a lot of people, like an, uh, you know, an aha moment and an awakening that, oh my God, it's not just the top 10 examples that we all think of of nonviolent movements working or not working. Like We actually now have evidence that that this, this methodology of struggle has been effective. That's funny. I, I remember I, I had Erica on this show as well. Um, and I was talking to her right as, as the Burkina Faso uh, uprising was, was happening. And I remember at the time, this was a couple of years ago, and, and she just said, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This, and this, and if this happens, then this happens. And sure enough, uh, here we are. Burkina Faso sort of stands apart as, as sort of a, an example of a nonviolent struggle working well in, in an African context, at least. Um, yeah, no, so, fascinating and fascinating. I'll just say on Burkina Faso, for folks who are interested in studying the role of the arts and culture in nonviolent resistance and, you know, knowing that the movement that motored the nonviolent resistance in Burkina Faso was youth-led and a bunch of musicians, yet, who were creative and savvy and knew how to organize people. So fascinating case study from many perspectives. Um, so uh, after Tufts, where did you end up? So after uh, finishing my, my PhD work, I moved to Washington and I worked for a few years at the Interna International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. 
um, which is a small uh, educational foundation that focuses on uh, developing, disseminating knowledge and know-how about strategic nonviolent conflict. So that was a, um, uh, an incredibly valuable experience. I was doing work both with educators, with activists, with some uh, policymakers and practitioners, just trying to you know, spread, um, spread information about how this method of struggle works, why it matters, and what it means to support it, both as educators and teaching about it, um, you know, as practitioners and doing training and, and support for activists and movements globally, and then policymakers. What does it mean to, to effectively um, engage with and support nonviolent movement. So it was a great, um, you know, it was a great experience for a few years. And for me, what was most, um, you know, most important about that time at ICNC was having regular interaction with activists coming from some of the most repressive closed places around the world and hearing their stories and, you know, hearing how, they were able to, you know, continue to organize, mobilize, come up with creative tactics, notwithstanding violence, repression, discouragement. So was there, um, is there an know, example you, that, that sort of sticks with you to this day of someone you met who was operating in an exceedingly difficult place? I, yeah, I mean, I think meeting activists um, from who had one who had escaped um, North Korea and was sort of just explaining what he was trying to do cross border to to support you know flows of information and um, you know just solidarity was very um, you know just amazing to hear. And then um, meeting with Zimbabwean women who were very involved in nonviolent organizing resistance um, you know to the Mugabe dictatorship and they used clever tactics you know grounded in love and community and were, you know, just trying to do what they could. Are these um, the ZPP you know. people? The no. Z ZPP? No. no. Okay. No. So at a time, I mean, they were, they were coming yeah. from different organizations. One was from Women of Zimbabwe Arise. And now, you know, what's interesting is, you know, however many years later, about a decade later, we see what's happening in Zimbabwe um, with a this flag movement that is, you know, now morphed into different movements, um, probably the most significant nonviolent um, civilian uprising that's happened in that country in a long time mm -hmm. that has serious uh, legs. And, you know, so I've had the great privilege of meeting some of the leaders of this flag. Um, and and, and so we should just say, say this flag is so named after a YouTube video by a preacher who had a very impassioned, um, monologue, one might say, in which he's clutching the Zimbabwean flag and describing what each color represents in, in sort of very real and, and sort of meaningful way. And it inspired a, uh, a, a protest movement in Zimbabwe against the Mugabe move, uh, government. Exactly. I mean, it was one um, symbolic action and video that went viral that was made by a then unknown pastor, Pastor Ivan uh, Mawarire, that, na that just sort of took the nation by storm. And it led to a series of nonviolent actions, including um, a, a na nationwide strike that sort of shut down the country, the economy for a day um, that attracted mass participation. Um, and so it, this is an interesting movement to watch. Um, especially in the lead up to the next elections, um, which are going to be happening in 2018 in Zimbabwe. Um, so what are you up to now? Like what, what are your, your, your current focus? I know we, we kicked off talking about your work on, on authoritarianism around the world. Um, what else can we expect from you in, in the near future? 
Sure. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my work, um, in addition to the Future of Authoritarianism Project, which I co-lead at the Atlantic Council, um, my main work here at the U.S. Institute of Peace is working to build and develop a program on nonviolent movements. Um, so both furthering the research on, um, you know, on nonviolent movements with a particular focus on the roles that external actors, so governments, NGOs, solidarity groups can play in supporting um, nonviolent movements for, for rights and freedoms around the world. So I'm very much focused on this research question. And actually, um, I should note that Erica Chenoweth and I are actually working on a second book together. Ooh, exciting. Um, about <laughs> yes, uh, it is exciting about the roles um, that external actors have played um, in nonviolent struggles from 2000 to present. So we have we hope to be able to have something interesting and empirically backed to say about how outside actors both positively and negatively impact um, the trajectories and outcomes of nonviolent movements. So that'll hopefully come out within the next couple of years. But, but anyway, so that, um, well, that well, research mean, work. That's exciting. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, we're, we're presumably about to enter an era of U.S. foreign policy in which support, at least official government support for these kinds of movements might not be as, say, robust as it would have been in the past. Um, so it, it seems to me that um, the role of, of private organizations or NGOs or civil society in, in, say, the United States, the way that they can help um, nonviolent movements abroad is just like so kind of critical going into the future. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, the value of this research project is that we're looking at a very broad spectrum of external actors. So not just governments, we're looking at, you know, uh, non-governmental organizations, foundations, transnational solidarity groups, um, you know, international organizations, media, corporations. So we're looking at a very broad range of actors and trying to understand better when they help and when they harm uh, nonviolent movements, which by definition thrive on local authenticity, legitimacy, participation. So, you know, there are pros and cons, of course, to outside support, and we're trying to better understand what, you know, what that means. But, you know, so, so beyond that research, a lot of my work since, you know, leaving the State Department a few years ago has been focused on, um, you know, trying to uh, encourage deeper thinking amongst the policy community and practitioner community um, about more effectively engaging with these non-traditional civil society actors, these movements. So a lot of my writing and speaking has been focused on this idea of a movement mindset and what it means to have a movement mindset when you're a donor, a funder, an NGO, um, to be able to support movement building activities that are, you know, able to be sustained over time. So that's been a lot of my work, um, you know, over the past few years, um, and as well, just trying where I can to support, um, you know, local movement building in, in various countries, East Africa and beyond, um, just trying to support those who are on the front lines of change um, with some of the skill sharing, peer networking, that kind of thing. So, you know, so that's a, that's been a big chunk of, of my work um, here at the U.S. Institute of Peace and with the, the practitioner and policy community here in Washington. 
Washington and beyond. And you're right, we're in an era where we all, you know, need to be thinking creatively from a foundation perspective, from an NGO perspective, how to most effectively support what we know to be the most uh, significant and effective drivers of positive social and political change, which are movements. Um, so hopefully that that work will, um, you know, will be continuing into the in the future. Uh, well, Maria, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. No, well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, best of luck. Uh, best of luck holding this together. And I'll be yeah. happy to, to hear when it comes out. All right. Thank you all for listening. And, you know, I do wonder uh, that if the kind of research that, that Chenoweth and Stefan have produced existed when I was an, an undergrad way back when, if I might have maybe followed in their intellectual trails and, and gone into academia myself. But you know, the, the, the path not taken, the road not taken, I'm very happy with what I'm doing. And I'm happy because I do it for you. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year to you. And I have some great, great episodes coming up in the new year and some great announcements to make. So stay tuned. Thank you all. See you later. Bye.